We're going to continue to look at the topic we started last week. The idea of walking in the dust of the rabbi. If you have your, uh, you have some notes there in your celebration folder and you can use those to follow along. Last week we considered this quote from Billy Graham that said, Salvation is free but discipleship costs everything we have. Salvation is offered to us free but we're told in scriptures to then work out our own salvation. How does this, how is this going to look in your life? Not how are you going to get to heaven, but what is discipleship? What is following after Jesus going to look like? What are the steps of obedience that each one of us have to take? So we're going to spend these next few minutes just kind of reviewing some of the things that we talked about last week. And then we're going to move into some new areas. The idea of being a disciple of Christ is that you've committed your entire life to being like your rabbi. Now last week we went through a lot of the rabbinic education uh, system and a lot of historical data. If you want to hear some of that, it is on the website, and you can get some of those details. But essentially, we had a system of rabbis who took the law and then interpreted it and created lists of rules and ways that you follow those teachings and those laws. And the people who followed these rabbis were called his disciples. Jesus came along in the same tradition as the rabbi, the great teacher, who had authority to give final interpretation of the law. And he called men to himself. Much the same way that the rabbis did. They would go to their students and say, Come and be with me. Come and be with me. And those disciples would follow those rabbis around, not only learn their teachings, but do what they did, eat what they ate, went where they went. Every step of the rabbi was to be followed by his disciple. Jesus in John 15, 16 made these same kind of statements. He says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Jesus, the great rabbi, has chosen his followers and has invited us into relationship with him and has said, Come and be with me. We looked at the fact that discipleship has a call. There's a call to discipleship. It is threefold. Jesus said to his disciples, come and see. Come and see, come and see where I hang out. Come and see what it's like to be around me. Investigate. Jesus said to come and follow him. Come and just follow me around. See what happens in my presence. And then the final step to come and be with me. Come and live with me. Come do what I do. Come to the places where I go. Come and be with me. We talked about the fact that that not only is there a call, there is a cost. The cost of discipleship. Jesus doesn't call us into easy relationship with him, but a relationship that has a cost. In Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says to his disciples that they will be hated just as he was hated. There's a cost. In 2 Timothy 3.12, it says that those who follow Jesus will have to endure persecution. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 26 and 27, Jesus warns his disciples that walking in this rabbi's dust will mean personal sacrifice and even death. There is a cost to following Jesus. And there is a commitment. 
There is a call, a cost, and there is a commitment. Jesus has cost, called us to put full faith in Him. Full faith. Full trust. We must believe that He has given us to do all the things that the rabbi has done. We looked at Peter, who took the step to walk on water. He began to sink when he began to think about, I don't think I can do this. And he lost sight of the fact that Jesus could do it. And because the rabbi did it, the rabbi gave the disciple the power to do what he had done. He lost sight of that. You know, after the sermon last week, I got to thinking about, you know, we really get on Peter for sinking. What about the other 11 dudes who never bothered to get out of the boat? But that's just a sideline that my brain works in weird ways. As I'm speaking, I think of things. And if I had a pen, I would write them down. But that would be a completely different sermon. God calls us to discipleship, to walking in His steps, and says there is a cost and there's a commitment. A commitment to believe that the rabbi can work through you. That you can accomplish what the rabbi has accomplished. That you can go where the rabbi went. That you can do the things that the rabbi has done. And why does he do this? I believe the, the answer to that question is because there is a cause. There is a cause. A cause greater than any cause that mankind has ever known. A cause greater than any idea you or I could come up with. And I believe that cause is found in John chapter 12, starting in verse 23. It says this, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Jesus answers his own rhetorical question. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The cause that Jesus, our rabbi, calls us to is the cause of God's glory. It's the cause of God's glory. We are to be all about God's glory. Now remember we said last week that being a disciple and follower of Jesus is only one thing. We talked about what it's not. It is not about your comfort. Following Jesus is not about your comfort. It is not about your priorities. It is not about your definition of what following Jesus is. It is about the kingdom of God and God's glory. God calls us to the cause of bringing glory to the Father and building the Father's kingdom. As a matter of fact, it's about following Jesus as closely as we possibly can. Not just subscribing to His teachings. A lot of people do that, don't they? Not just giving assent to the tenets of Christianity. Churches all over America are filled this morning with people who give assent to the tenets of Christianity. But it is about living your life as He led His. 
of being the most like Him that you can possibly be. We quoted a famous rabbi who had told his disciples, cover yourself in the dust of your rabbi's feet. Cover yourself in the dust of the rabbi's feet. You see, those in our lives should see us dusty for Jesus. We should be following so closely to Him that as He walks, that it stirs up the dust of His path on us. The rabbi believes that you can be like Him. And so He's called you to Himself. The rabbi has called you. He has set a cost before you. He asks you for a commitment. And He calls you to His cause. The glory of God. The building up of the kingdom of God. And so this week, we want to look at a few specific areas where Jesus would have us walk in His dust. How do we practically live our lives in our rabbi's dust? Now, I realize I'm taking a risk this morning. Because last week, we talked about rabbis creating a system of rules and regulations to follow the law. And I don't want to create another list. I want us to look, though, at five aspects of Jesus' life and Jesus' teachings that I believe will help us stay in His dust. Five things that I believe Jesus would say to us in this place today. Let's look at how Jesus lived His life, of what He believed, of what He taught, of what He did. Number one, Jesus hates hypocrisy. Jesus hates hypocrisy. Now, we could get an amen on that probably from most anybody outside these walls, couldn't we? If we were going to do a survey of what don't you like about Christians in the church, what would be in the top five? Hypocrisy. The definition we would normally use for hypocrisy is you say one thing, but you do another. You're all high and mighty over here and you act really spiritual, but here's this stuff. Jesus went a step further. He believed that hypocrites were those who majored on the minors while forgetting the truly important things in life. The truly important aspects of following God were set aside for a bunch of rules and regulations and minor, minuscule ideas. In Matthew 23, Jesus spends an entire chapter of the New Testament speaking to those he calls hypocrites. Here are some of the things he addresses. In Matthew 23, 13, he tells them that they follow their own idea of strict spiritual guidelines, but while they're busy doing that, they're closing off heaven to people. Jesus says, you're hypocrites. You're supposed to be opening heaven. You're supposed to be opening up eternity in a relationship with me to people, and what you're doing is you're minoring. You're you're majoring on these little minor things. And you have this strict spiritual guidelines and people are getting lost in it. Everyone's trying so hard to meet up to your standards that they're not finding a relationship with God. In verse 15, Jesus says, Hypocrites, you're converting people to rules, not a relationship. You've got a lot of rules. Good job on the rules. But there's no relationship. In verse 23... He says, hypocrites, you're obsessing over giving tithes of even the smallest thing, but you've forgotten some things. You've forgotten justice 
and mercy and faithfulness. Pretty big things. Now, what were they, what were they focused on? Well, if you look at chapter 23 of Matthew in verse 23, it says you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. All right, here's how far these rules had gone. Because the Old Testament taught the rule of tithing, the rabbis and these, the Pharisees and who Jesus calls hypocrites would say, well, we need to give a tenth of everything to God. They had gotten to the extent that they were measuring out their spices. Now, you can just see this, can't you? Trying to measure out spices. You know, okay, here's, I got 10 teaspoons, so we got one teaspoon for God and nine teaspoons. Are we kidding? This is where it gotten. So they were worried about their mint and their dill and their cumin and all these spices, making sure that they had rules, so they made sure that they gave a tenth of everything to God. But what had they lost? What had they missed? Jesus says you've missed justice and mercy and faithfulness. Hypocrites. You've majored on the minors. You're over here cutting your spices while justice is going out the window. Justice isn't taking place. There's no mercy. There's no faithfulness. That's not what you're talking about. You're not calling people to those things. You're calling people to divide up their spice rack. In verse 25, Jesus says, You worry about your dietary rules and your cleanliness. Yeah, you got people washing their hands at the right time, and you got people eating the right thing, and you got people worried about everything they're going to put in their body. The problem is your heart's full of greed and self-indulgence. You want to worry what's, about, what's going in? Why don't you worry about what's coming out? And he calls them hypocrites. In verse 27, Jesus says, you worry about how you look outwardly. Here we go. You worry about how you look outwardly, but you forget the inside. You forget that God looks on the heart. So you make sure you dress a certain way and you look a certain way and that people can evaluate you by how you look, but your insides are messed up. And he calls them hypocrites. In verse 29, he says, you honor rather than renounce the sins of past generations. You haven't stepped away from the sins of your, of your ancestors. And you've honored them. It says you've honored them with tombs and you haven't stepped aside and let your children know. This is not the God we are going to worship. This is not who we are going to follow. This is not what we are going to do. We're going to turn and go a new direction and honor the one true God. And yet you honor them rather than renounce them. He says you're hypocrites. Jesus hates hypocrisy. He hates when we major on minors. And if any institution in the history of mankind has majored on minors, it is the church. Got really quiet right there. So what's God say to us today? Well, I don't believe he says, evaluate the hypocrite seated in the row in front of you. I believe he says to us, are you a hypocrite? Do you major on the minors? Jesus hates hypocrisy. 
So how do we walk in his dust? Well, we focus on the things that were important to him. And we set aside all this other stuff. We set aside how someone worships or where they worship or what they look like when they worship. We set aside worrying about making sure we have all our little rules figured out and that everybody else follows them. We stop obsessing about the smallest things and we focus on justice and mercy and faithfulness. We start making sure our hearts aren't full of greed and self-indulgence. We evaluate ourselves from the inside out. We renounce the sins of past generations. We get his dust all over us. Number two, Jesus hates hypocrisy. And second, Jesus calls us to personal holiness. He calls us to personal holiness. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the writer addresses this issue beginning in verse 13. Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Jesus calls us to a life of personal holiness. Now, what does that specifically mean? Well, I think Peter gives us some indication here. First, he says, prepare your minds for action. And I believe this simply means a regular time in the Scriptures is essential to spiritual health. We have three habits around here. The first one is a daily quiet time with God. Why? Because people who are being washed daily and infected, if you will, by the Word of God become spiritually healthy. We start running our lives by the scriptures instead of anything else that comes along. It says preparing your minds for action. A more literal translation here would be to gird up the loins of your mind. This is an athletic term. You can imagine what it means. But it means to be ready to fight. Don't let anything hold you back or slow you down. Be ready for action. Prepare your minds. Our minds get us in trouble, don't they? When our minds are not focused on the truth of Scripture, we get ourselves in trouble. When we don't have Scripture permeating every decision and every thought of our life, we will get ourselves in trouble. Jesus says, gird yourself up. Be ready for action. Be ready to run. Be ready to fight. Don't let anything hold you back or hold you down. Next, Peter says, be self-controlled. Other versions use the word sober. Be sober. It simply means to be able to make decisions based on the truth of Scripture, not on our emotions. Not how we feel at the time, not on the fears that we have, not on the things that we obsess about, but on the truth of Scripture. I've said this many times from this place. In any moment of life of indecision, ask yourself, what is truth? What is the truth here? It is self-control. To be sober. To be able to make life decisions based upon the truth of Scripture. Then Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. To set our hope. I believe Peter's saying, live with eternity in view. What is important is seen only in determining what is really important in eternity. Eternity. 
Not what's important at this moment. Not what seems important right at this second. But what's important for eternity. I know three things that are eternal. God, His Word, and the souls of men and women. And if we can focus our lives on those three things, we can be focused on the eternal. Then Peter says, Do not conform to the evil desires when you, you had when you lived in ignorance. Do not conform. Peter's reminding us, you are not who you were. As disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, you aren't who you used to be. We are new creations, the Bible says. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about allowing our flesh to have control. You know, there's this piece of us, the Bible calls the flesh. This stuff we're left at, left with even when the Spirit controls us and enters into us. For every believer, we fight this daily battle between the Spirit and the flesh. It's a matter of knowing the truth so we can say yes to the Spirit. It's about spirit control. James in James 1.14 though says, Watch or you'll get caught. He says each one of us is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Our flesh will get us in trouble. Those feelings we have get us in trouble. The things we think we want and need get us in trouble. Peter says you don't have to conform to that anymore. Because that... Those are desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But now you live in the knowledge of a relationship with the Holy One. Then he says, be holy. Simply meaning the manner of life that you live should be that of Jesus. In His dust. Jesus hates hypocrisy. Jesus calls us to personal holiness in number three. When we look at the life of Jesus, what do we know about him? We know that Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. Now, if anybody had an excuse not to pray, don't you think it'd be Jesus? He was God after all. What was he doing? Praying to himself? No, let's remember who this role that Jesus took on. Jesus took on the role of a rabbi. What was the goal and point of a rabbi? to be an example to his disciples. And so Jesus prayed. He prayed to remain, remain in relationship with his Father. And he prayed to give us an example of what our lives were to be about. Jesus prayed passionately. He prayed desperately. He prayed miraculously. In John 17, there's a passage where Jesus prayed. Now, it's interesting, Jesus, because Jesus was known for his departures, I would call them from crowds. And he'd get away from the busyness of life and he'd step into a solitary place and he'd pray. But on this occasion, Jesus prays with his disciples present. This passage takes place in the upper room the night of the Last Supper. And here Jesus prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for you. He prays to all, for all those who will become believers. And what's he pray? First, he asks for God the Father to be glorified. That's a great way to start a prayer, isn't it? I believe there was another prayer he gave that started that same way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He asked for the Father to be glorified. Second, he asked for himself to be glorified. Jesus knew that he was the hope of the world. So he asked for the glory of the Father to be upon him. He asked for the protection of the disciples from the evil one. See, Jesus knew that the game was getting ready to step it up a notch. Because he knew that in a few days he would rise from the dead. And Satan's plan A would be over with. It didn't work. And that Satan would move on to plan B, which was to convince the followers of Jesus that they couldn't do it, that they couldn't follow their rabbi. And so he prays for protection of the disciples from the evil one. He also asks that they be sanctified or made holy. How? By the word of God. Here's Jesus praying for his disciples and for you that you will be made holy and sanctified by the word of God. Now the next thing he prays, I believe, is a miracle. He's praying for a miracle here. He prays for the unity of the church. I think we're still waiting on whether that one's being answered or not. Jesus prays for our unity, for the unity of the church where we don't get caught up in who's who and who's what and who looks what way, but where we see one another as followers of Jesus Christ and the only thing we evaluate one another on on is, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And he asks for every believer to truly know the depths of Christ's love for them. He prays for us on that night thousands of years ago that we would know the depth of His love for us. So I ask this question, disciple of the Rabbi Jesus, how's your prayer life? Do you seek God desperately with the realization that there is no hope in yourself or in your way? Do you pray passionately, believing that you must do so to live? Or is it a rule you try to follow to get your prayer time checked off? Do you really believe that only God can transform lives and transform circumstances? How's your prayer life? Jesus hates hypocrisy. He calls us to personal holiness. Jesus prayed. And number four, Jesus lived generosity and service. He lived generosity and service. In John chapter 13, again in that upper room, just hours before he would die. We see Jesus teaching his disciples about service. It says this in verse 12, when he finished washing their feet, and we all know that story, that Jesus, the creator of the universe, stooped down and washed his disciples' feet. After he'd finished, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth that no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if what? You do them. Jesus' life was one of generosity. Every moment of every day of his life, 
He was offering himself to others and to their needs. He was giving himself to the needs of others, pouring out himself as a servant. See, again, it's not about us. It's not about what you need. It's about what somebody else needs. It's not about you being ministered to. It's about you ministering to someone else. It's not about your hurt. It's about someone else's hurt. Mother Teresa said this, Hands that give will never be empty. You know, there's a phrase that I've heard a lot of years, over the years as a pastor, and it's this. I'm not being fed. I'm not being fed. That, that class didn't feed me. That sermon didn't feed me. That worship didn't feed me. I think it's the wrong question. See, it's not, am I being fed? I think the question ought to be, who am I feeding? Who am I feeding? Who am I pouring my life into? Not who's doing stuff for me. Who am I doing for? Whose need am I focused on? We serve because Jesus clearly gave us an example of servanthood. The night before he died, he stooped at his disciples' feet and said, You're to serve one another as I have served you. He gave his life for us. And we have to offer our lives to him and to others. Jesus lived generosity and service. So the question to you today and to me, do you have his dust all over you? The dust of generosity and service? And number five, Jesus lived incarnational ministry. Jesus lived incarnational ministry. Luke chapter four, very interesting passage. What does incarnational ministry mean? Well, it simply means in in his case that the creator became the creation in order to save it. The creator became his creation. Jesus was countercultural, wasn't he? I mean, he came from a faraway place and stepped into our time and this world and brought with him a new culture. He hung out with all the wrong people, didn't he? All the wrong people. He came to minister to the poor and to the sick and to the oppressed and to the sinful. Here's what Luke 4 says. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now, get this picture. Everybody's sitting around. Here's this kid who's come back into town who they saw grow up. He comes into the temple to read. And suddenly you realize he's reading a passage from Isaiah and he's not just reading it, he's declaring it. He's saying, this is me. What does Jesus read? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, I guess. There was something about the way Jesus read that passage. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus said, The God of the universe has stepped into time and has come to you. Here I am. I am the one who has been anointed to preach good news to the poor who's come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. I have come to release the oppressed and I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The time has come. I am bringing freedom. I am bringing salvation to you. Jesus came into a cold, messy, sinful world to become us in order to save us. So the question for us today is, is the dust of Jesus' incarnational ministry on us? How willing are you to go? To get into someone else's world and know them deeply. To go to people not like you. It may take getting on a plane. It may take walking across the street. Is your life grabbing hold of the hurts and the struggles of the poor? Is your life focused on the spiritual and physical needs of the imprisoned? Are you all about ministering to blind ones who need you in order to find Jesus? Are you focused on the oppressed people of our world who don't have a voice of their own. Because that is what our rabbi did. He hung out with all the wrong people. Are we ready to get ourselves dirty for Jesus? And step in to the messy, sinful lives of people who aren't just like us. You see, we're to walk in our rabbi's dust and proclaim that there is freedom, that there is forgiveness, that there is healing, that there is real prosperity found only in Jesus. That is what we're to be about. Why? Because that's what our rabbi was about. He came and he gave his life and he died so that we could live. Jesus lived incarnational ministry and we are too. So the questions for us today, as his followers, as disciples of this rabbi, do you hate hypocrisy? Are you striving for personal holiness? How's your prayer life? Are you generous, desiring to serve others? And are you living out incarnational ministry? Today, we celebrate and remember that incarnational ministry of Jesus as we take the symbolic elements of the bread and the wine together. See, they represent Christ's body that was broken for us and His blood that was poured out as a sacrificial offering before God for us. You see, 
when we come to these elements of the Lord's table, we are giving Him praise because He came. Because He got involved in our messy, sinful lives. He came to proclaim to us freedom and healing and forgiveness. And we celebrate that in these moments. So I want each of us to take these moments to examine ourselves as disciples of this Rabbi Jesus. Let's just take the time to confess failure to follow Him and then repent and determine to do so completely. Then as you feel as that you're ready, you can go to any of the servers around this room. They may be in front of you or beside you or behind you. Take a piece of bread to remind you of Christ's broken body and then dip it in the cup, reminding you of His shed blood. And the attendants will remind you of those facts, that this is Christ's blood, broken, this Christ's body broken for you and His blood shed for you. If you want to spend time at the altar praying, then please do so. If you want to kneel there at your seat, feel free to do that also. These next moments, as we come to these elements, are for disciples recommitting ourselves to our rabbi, the one whose dust in which we seek to faithfully walk.